All right. Thank you, Professor Ben. Uh, Professor Ben Phillips was my New Testament end times teacher, and he taught me this simple statement, Jesus is coming back, so be ready. That was the summary of our end times class, so I just saved you about like 10 grand. You're welcome if you ever wanted to take that. Just kidding. Um, it's great to see so many of you today, uh, your new faces, old faces, and thank you to those of you joining us via live stream as well. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I'm delighted to be able to share God's Word with you today. But before we do, I want to start off in prayer. I think that's a good place to start and uh, express our gratitude to God. So would you join me in praying? Father, thank you that we might not be where we want to be, but thank you, God, we're not where we used to be. Thank you that you're carrying us forward, that you're making out of us the people for your own possession. That's what your Word says. So I pray that we would be satisfied in the meanwhile, that we would be content in the middle of circumstances that we don't like, because we know that you're perfecting us and that you're with us. I pray that you'd bless each person today. I pray that you'd make your word clear. I pray, God, that you would give me divine help in communicating your word the way you intended it to be communicated. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, today I'm honored to continue our series on uh, Exodus called Exit Us, and I chose this because Moses looks like he's dancing a little bit with the Ten Commandments, and I just kind of like that, uh, no particular reason, but we're coming to the Ten Commandments today, which might be the most notable part of the Old Testament and arguably the entire Bible uh, that you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments unless you've been living under a rock. Pastor Paul was due to preach on the first five commandments, and I was due to preach on the last five, but today I'm preaching on the last five of the Ten Commandments. And the reason I'm doing that is because Pastor Paul's been taking care of his parents who are really struggling with their help, and I say that so that you can pray for them. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Conway are wonderful people. They're some of the most uh, kind individuals that I've met, and the Conway family could use your prayers in this critical season of time. And when you pray for them, make sure you pray for Lord and Lady Conway, because technically they're Irish nobility. So there you go, a little bit of trivia for you. Um, we're going to be switching the order of the commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments are the Bible's way of telling us how to love God. The first four of the Ten Commandments are vertical commandments. They have to do with our relationship between us and God. The last six commandments have to do with how we love our neighbor and how we love our enemy, how we love those people around us. They're horizontal commandments. Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments into two commandments in Matthew 22. Uh, he distilled them down to their base principles. When Jesus was teaching in the temple, this religious lawyer approaches him and asks the question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. As Pastor Paul's taught us, the Hebrew there is uve hol, meaning your everything. This is the first great commandment. And a second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, love for God on the one side, love for people on the other, that's what the Ten Commandments are trying to teach us. They're these two concepts. But love has a shape, right? It doesn't get to mean whatever we want it to mean. We can't just bend it to look like whatever we want to. I could tell you I love cats, and then if you saw a video online of me punting one, you might question how much I love cats, because love doesn't get to mean whatever I say. It has a particular definition. 
God tells us what it looks like to love him and love others in the commandments because love has defined boundaries. It has a shape. It doesn't get to mean whatever. Love is not Plato. It's not Burger King. You can't just have it your way. It has particular set boundaries. I think these principles, these commandments, answer the question, what does love look like? Or you could phrase it another way, how is love shaped? So we're going to read the Ten Commandments together. And you can find them in Exodus chapter 20. You could just listen to me and follow along. You could, uh, uh, I'll give you time to get there in your own Bibles if you would like. To set a little background for you, the Israelites have approached Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, they've consecrated themselves, which is a holy a word that just means to make holy. They've washed themselves ceremonially. They're ready to hear from God. And this is a unique time in the Bible because it's one of the very few times that God verbally out loud addresses people. He assembles the nation and he speaks to them. So this is a very key moment in history because God is speaking out loud. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. You can also find the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. Moses repeats them later on. But since we're going through Exodus, we'll be reading them out of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And lastly, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. God, thank you that you have given us these commandments. Today, my prayer, Lord, is that you would expand our hearts and our spirits to run in your commandments, that you would give us the ability, God, to walk in such a way where we delight in what you say. We delight in your law, and we're able to do it because we love you. I pray that you would put your spirit in each person to give them understanding, and you would help me to communicate your word clearly. And we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen. Amen. The fair and just treatment of our neighbor is something humanity has been trying and failing to achieve since the dawn of our short history. We're really bad at loving our neighbors. All it takes to prove that is a quick look at history, five minutes in the cesspool of Twitter and Facebook, a glance at the evening news, or being a part of really any family for any amount of time to discover that human beings are selfish, rude, unkind, and yes, even hateful. This is undisputed. Humans are naturally inclined to be selfish. And this isn't where you look sideways at a spouse or a kid, all right? This is where you look at you. 
The author of Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, is quoted as saying, I have been a selfish being my entire life, but only in practice, though, never in principle. You see, we tend to see the problem as being out there and never in here. We see the demonization of others in that group and fail to see the propensity for evil within ourselves. In our own eyes, like the lovely Miss Austen, we are merely evil in practice, but not deep down in principle. But I hope you hear the sarcasm in her voice. As God speaks these commandments to the assembled nation of Israel, he has in mind our tendency as human beings to see only the fault in others and to excuse it in ourselves, when in fact evil lies close at hand. As God says to Abel or to Cain before he kills his brother Abel, sin is crouching at your door. It's ready to pounce. It's like an animal who's ready to consume you. And God sees the same danger in the Israelites. He sees it in us, so he gives us the commandments, because he knows humanity has the sin of Cain, which means, number one, we see evil in others, in groups, in systems, in able, but not in us. And number two, we are willing to excuse evil in ourselves as long as it is expedient for us to do so. Hatred is good, so we reason, as long as it's directed at the right people. Verse 13, the first commandment, commandment number five, says, you shall not murder. And we blaze past it, assuming that we're clean of that sin. And yet in Matthew 5, Jesus in his classic way looks past the exterior and says to the crowds, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with their brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In verse uh, 21 and 22. And yet, how many of us are quick to blast our opponents on social media to go on a campaign and degrade people made in the very image of God? That's why I'm happy I don't have a Facebook or Twitter account. I don't trust myself. Many of us trust the self-righteous tendencies in our own hearts too readily. Do you truly think the world would be a better place if it merely listened to you? Do you think that your indignation, your outrage, your hatred, and your logic, and your social media posts will make the world a more just place? Don't forget the words of James. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We live in a day where anger and hate are encouraged, cultivated, and justified by the powers that be, but God sees to the heart of the issue and gives the Israelites and us a commandment to refrain from murder in all its forms. You shall not murder those made in the image of God, whether in cold-blooded killing or whether in hatred. You have no right. Anger, hatred, manslaughter, premeditated, cold-blooded killing, the destruction of life in all of its forms in God's law is prohibited. Now I'm about to address something, and I ask you to listen with open hearts because I've prayed, I've agonized, and I have genuinely lost hours of sleep because of what I'm about to say to you for your building up in Christ. And now is the time where you suspend your judgment and listen. Recently, we've seen so much violence in our society. Racial tensions, multiple mass shootings, and more. These killings grieve my heart. And to say they're tragedies is an understatement. 
And yet many of us are quick to judge, slow to listen, so sure of our own opinions that we get the point and we miss the person. And I ask you to exercise both compassion to the hurting and restraint in your opinions. Because anger and hatred spewed with words can be just as murderous as killing. And I pray that we wouldn't pollute our souls with them. May we, above all, guard our hearts against hate, because only love can heal us. And I'm not a political commentator. This pulpit is not for that, and it never will be. I'm a teacher of God's Word, and if you expect me to be something else, you would be happier somebody else, because I'm not here to fix the world. I'm not wise enough for that. But I am speaking to you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, as people under my care, that you are duty-bound to love your neighbors and to love your enemies. It doesn't matter what you feel about them. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter how they talk to you or don't listen to you. You are duty-bound to love. And your job is not to fix the world through social media posts. It is to love people. Jordan Peterson, a psychologist I deeply admire, said this. The proper way to fix the world isn't to fix the world. There's no reason to assume that you're even up to such a task. But you can fix yourself. And you'll do no one any harm by doing so. And in that manner, at least, you will make the world a better place. You see, no earthly judge, no policy, no politician, and no movement can fix the human heart. Only the sacrificial love given to us by Jesus can heal these kinds of wounds. Only love can help us feel each other's pain, listen to one another, and only love can stop us from demonizing one another. Because listen to me, evil lies close at hand to each of you. It's ready to pounce. Its desire is to have you just like it had Cain. Evil is in you just as much as it's in the people that are your enemy. It's in your group as much as it's in another group. So watch what you say and watch what you allow to fester in your hearts towards people that God says he loves. And watch what you say towards people sitting next to you in these pews and what you feel in your heart towards them because the scriptures say murder is as much a matter of the heart as it is of the hands. The scriptures say no human can tame the tongue. With it we, press, we praise our God and Father, and then we curse people made in his likeness. Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Some of you should delete your social medias right now. And may I remind you of the words of Jesus Christ, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and ignore the plank that is in your own? Perhaps if we had less solutions if fewer of us were so sure of our own wisdom and more of us were grieved by what's inside of us, the world would truly be a more just and loving place. John the Apostle said this, For this is the message you've heard from me from the very beginning, that we should love one another. Yet we should not be like Cain, who was of the devil and murdered his brother, because everyone who hates their brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in them, 1 John 3. You should write this commandment on your heart. You shall not murder. 
Because when you're cognitive of your own weakness with the commandments stored up in your heart, you will stop seeing people from other perspectives as enemies, but rather as potential brothers and sisters. And I charge you in the presence of God with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, you shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he is kind to both the evil and the good. And if you want to love people and not only see change in our country, forget about that for a moment, but change in your life, change in your family's life. If you want to see that happen, then lay down your anger, stop trying to get even, and serve those who don't deserve it. That's what our faith's been about from the beginning. Serve your spouse when you're angry. Serve your boss and your co-workers when they mistreat you. Serve your enemies because Jesus did that for you when you were God's enemy. And serve your ungrateful parents or your prodigal children. Forgive those who don't deserve it. You have every right to get even, but that will only help you and destroy your enemy, and you end up being no different from those who killed Christ, and you become the very thing you hate. And yet, in another very real sense, on the other hand, your right to get even died with Christ on the cross. And your real justice will only come when he sets up his throne on earth. But do you have the faith to wait for it? The faith that says Jesus is the real, true judge who can give me real, true justice. That's what Jesus means when he says, when I come, will I find faith on the earth? Or will I just see a bunch of people, instead of looking to me, looking around them at everything else? And I believe that you, as this church, will be the kind of people waiting for him. Lowell Assembly of God, Northeast Christian Church, will be the kind of people waiting for Jesus in faith, because I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail, and I will continue to pray for you that you would not be trapped in a murderous cage of vengeance, but that you would be liberated to love not only your neighbors, but your enemies, those who scorn you, hate you, they, they have, want nothing to do with you because of your faith that you will have the courage to love those kinds of people. You shall not murder. How is love shaped? It's not shaped by anger and hatred. Don't kill people in cold blood, and don't commit murder with your heart in reaction to injustice. Overcome evil with good. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And I hope you hear that as something that comes from a shepherd's heart out of a place of love for you, because this world is not our home. The commandment in verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. And though I'm an unmarried man, I pray that you'd still listen to me, because, I mean, the Apostle Paul and Jesus were unmarried men, and that's where we get our, most of our marital advice from, so I hope I have something good to say in this regard. But unfaithfulness to your spouse is unfaithfulness to God. God uses it as a metaphor in the book of Hosea and says, sin is like you cheating on a spouse. And he uses it as one big metaphor. That's what it feels like to God. My family is littered with the debris of divorce, and it affects everyone. Do not believe the cultural lie that says, my sexual choices aren't hurting anyone. They do. 
They hurt your children. They hurt your parents. They hurt your future and much more. Your parents' legacy should not be marred because of your desires. Your, your children's future security should not be compromised because of your lack of self-control. We human beings have a tendency and an ability to deceive ourselves when we want something. And if my words seem harsh, I, I don't say them because I'm angry or I delight in pointing a finger. Listen, I say this because I've seen too many Christians fall into this trap and justify their desires and walk away from the Lord. I simply say this and lay the truth out here for you because there are too many powerful voices selling you a lie everywhere from the media to Cosmopolitan magazine or whatever else you want in all the world. Anybody will help you justify your behavior, but you shall not commit adultery. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. I share this story because it happened a little over five years, uh, five years ago now, and this person no longer, these people no longer attend here. Um, but it was, my, it was 2016, it was my first couple of months pastoring here. Uh, Pastor Paul was preaching a message uh, one week, and all the pastors and elders were lined up here at the altar praying for people. Hopefully we can bring that, soon when, bring that back soon when restrictions start to lift. Uh, but I was right here, I was the only, peop, uh, only person open to pray, and this couple approaches me. And they say, hey, can you pray for us? And I said, absolutely, how can I pray for you? And they came to me and they said, well, listen, we felt that God, lead us, God has led us to leave our former spouses to be together, and we want you to pray that God blesses this new marriage. And I was, you know, I was 22, I was pretty young, pretty brash, you know, I, I probably could have been a little more gentle, but I really don't regret what I said to them next. I said, God can't bless this because you're doing something directly contrary to what he said he's willing to bless. And it may shock some of us that some people think that way, but our capacity for self-deception is on par with them. They are not unique. Bono, the lead singer of U2, said this, stop asking God to bless you and start doing what God blesses. And may I suggest that we do the same in this area of conduct in our life. Perhaps the reason the abuse of women, the destruction of marriage, and the filth we find online is so prevalent in our society is because we have reject, rejected the counsel of God. Women are not inferior. The scriptures are clear that they're co-heirs with men of the kingdom of God. This is not something that's up for debate. They are not objects for fulfillment. Marriage is not about receiving bliss. It's about giving for another's betterment, and our eyes ought to look with pity and heartbreak upon what they too often look at with desire. I speak as sensitively as I can for the younger ones among us, but your desires can either be a fireplace or a wildfire. A fireplace has boundaries set into place. It gives warmth. It can cook food. It keeps the cold at bay from the outside, and people can gather around it and find life. A wildfire comes in and consumes the entire house, and leaves you outside with absolutely nothing in the cold. You get to choose what your desires become. But the good news is, if this has happened to you, and you've fallen in this way, you are not without hope. 
God can restore people who have fallen in this way. You are not hopeless. You are not used up. And if you've experienced heartache, divorce, and cheating, whether you did them or whether they were done to you, God is able to redeem. Look at King David, a man who knew how to own his own junk, but he knew God would be gracious to him. He cheated, but he knew how to confess and make it right, not by giving easy apologies, but by making restitution. You may have sinned, and there may be consequence, but one of them does not have to include you being forever less what you could have been with Jesus. Jesus will redeem you, and you can learn from your past and learn what it means to give in love instead of taking in lust. And if you're experiencing that pain, that pain of divorce, we're here to help. Uh, Divorce care starts soon, and you can sign up for that by emailing us along with many other groups like Grief Share, we are here to help you and journey with you. So how is love shaped? It's shaped for others, not for consumption. It's not for us to take in. Verse 15 says, you shall not steal. And if I could throw in verse 17, you shall not covet. The eighth and the tenth commandment. And I put them together because they have the same root, greed and envy. Verse 17 says you shouldn't covet all sorts of things. Your neighbor's house, spouse, land, workers, business, you can put anything in there, etc. Covet means to compare and then desire. It's the longing emotion that precedes all sorts of sin, dissatisfaction with your current life in favor of somebody else's. And some of us did that this morning on Instagram and Facebook. Another great reason to delete it. If we're not careful we can end up comparing the very worst of our lives to the very best of somebody else's. The theft of somebody else's life, their spouse, their possessions, and even their reputation with commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness, all hinge on covetousness, the desire to take instead of to give. It's the antithesis of godliness. It's the antichrist spirit, the spirit that says, I want instead of I'm willing to give. The book of James says it very straightforward. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. I want you to hear that. What did James say is the root of murders and fights and quarrels? Desire and covetousness. To covet is the ugly emotion behind every sin. You want something that God hasn't given you, so you steal it. And I think if James were here today, he would tell you, you can covet your whole life and never be exposed for it. It's the selfish heart that says, I deserve that. They don't deserve it. That should be me. They're not worthy of it, but I am. It's the classic statement, I'm gonna get mine. It's that kind of thinking that made Satan grasp at equality with God, only to fall forever. It's the same thinking in the Garden of Eden that made Adam and Eve grasp for more when they already owned everything and they lost it all. It was the same heart that Cain had when he saw the blessing of God on his brother Abel, so he kills him, thinking he can get it for himself. And it's the heart you and I are so easily infected with when we gaze outward. It can even look admirable when it takes the form of selfish ambition. When you're working 90-hour work weeks, climbing the corporate ladder, making money, and neglecting what God has put in front of you. 
It's the gross rejection of God and his gifts as being sufficient, dressed up as hard work or hustle. And it doesn't matter if you get that promotion, if your kids hate you. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Covetousness takes a thousand forms, more than I can talk about here this morning. But this old dog has no new tricks. It's the same old lie that sounds like this. More will satisfy me or something different will satisfy me. But don't buy the line that if you could just eat from that one forbidden tree, it would give you everything that every other tree in the garden could not. A person who lacks everything except God has everything. A person with everything apart from God is bankrupt. Basically, this last commandment is saying all the commandments are a matter of the heart not simply behavioral modification. As God says through the prophet Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. God is far more concerned with the motivation of your actions than your righteous actions alone. We have a way of trying to bend love out of shape so it's most advantageous to us, even when we're doing good things. Jesus says on the judgment day, people will come to him and say, Lord, look, I cast out demons in your name. I taught the scriptures in your name. I did good works in your name. And he'll say to them, depart from me, you workers of evil. I never knew you. He says that because we can have a life that does all the right stuff and still have a heart that doesn't care one bit for God and for other people. If people and God are simply means to a different end for you, you may be full of covetousness. During my uh, sabbatical uh, a couple of weeks ago, or however long it was, I, uh, I got to go to Key West, which was pretty amazing. They had some turquoise water. And uh, as I was there, I was just kind of relaxing in a state park, and I just kind of wandered into town just to see what it was like. And I came across uh, the house of one of my favorite authors, Ernest Hemingway. I think he's very in touch with human nature and how terrible it can be. My, uh, I actually have a first edition, uh, Old Man in the Sea. It's one of my prized possessions. It's like this old thing that's falling apart, but I love that I own it. But his first book, and probably his most famous, is called The Sun Also Rises. And it's a tragedy about this man who loves this woman. And this woman keeps using him for resource to go be with other men. And all he wants to give is love, but all she wants to do is use him for something else. And eventually it happens one too many times, and he splits ways and says, I can't do this anymore. And the book ends with them taking a car ride, talking about how it might have been. See, sometimes that's what we're like with the Lord. We come to him to get something else. We use others to get things. That is covetousness. In Matthew 19... A rich young man comes to Jesus, asking him how he can have eternal life. And Jesus tells him to do all the commandments, but he only quotes the commandments that we talked about today. Only the commandments that have to do with loving your neighbor. And though the young man says he's done them perfectly, Jesus still sees something in his heart. And the young man asks Jesus, what do I still lack? And Jesus tells him, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The young man walks away sad because he was a wealthy landowner. You see, in spite of all of his righteous action, the young man's heart was still set on keeping 
on taking instead of giving? How is love shaped? By giving like Christ. The young man wouldn't lay down his fortunes, but the scriptures say of Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich in 2 Corinthians. And this is not speaking of something as cheap as material wealth, but the true treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy, that thieves cannot break in and steal, the kind of treasure that is kept in heaven for you that makes you say, I have a better life coming. I'm not holding on to my one here and now. And it gives you the courage, the love, and the hope to give. That's the antidote to covetousness and to all of these sins, really. To give instead of take. Christ gave everything so that you could become children of God. And the commandments are a reminder that we are called to walk as he walked, to live as he lived. It's not merely about not doing things. It's about giving instead of taking. No longer do we take one another's spouse, one another's possessions, one another's reputations, or one another's lives, but we lay down our lives for others. It's not simply you shall not, it's you shall love. It's about loving our neighbors and our enemies in such a way that they can see the kingdom of God. It's about so much more than moral purity, though that's part of it. It's so that people can become children of God through your life. That's what loving your neighbor is about. That's how love is shaped. When I was a teenager, I was about 18 years old, I wandered into a pastor's office in the middle of nowhere, upstate New York, Hudson Falls, New York. And I was a young man full of anger, lust, greed, and behind it all, covetousness. There was so much wrong with my life. I mean, every commandment was broken. And I came into his office with all sorts of opinions and self-justifications and questions, and he didn't address any of that noise. But what he did was he put his finger on that part of my heart, like Jesus does with the rich young ruler because he's a good counselor. He put his finger on it and said, Dylan, is Jesus really enough for you? See, the commandments stop being a burden, and loving people becomes a joy when God is truly enough, even if he's all you have. When you're not scrambling for somebody else's life or spouse or possessions, when you're not scrambling for vengeance, but you're at peace, content just to have God, if that's all you have. And it's there that you find the courage that the rich young man didn't have, the courage that Jesus had to give it all away so others can see God, the courage to love, that's the kind of community that Jesus lives to create. And it's what I'm praying that you become day by day. I'm not interested in religious seminars. I come here on Saturdays and I intercede for you throughout the week. On Tuesdays, the pastors come together and we pray for you. And we do this so that you would become a people for God's own possessions, like the scriptures say, that are zealous for good works. That it's not merely about abstaining from things, but now you are doing things so that others would become children of God. You see, James says this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is this, to abstain from the pollution of the world, but to visit widows and orphans in their distress. It's not simply what you don't do, it's what you do. It's not what you don't take, it's about what you give. That is loving your neighbor. 
and I pray and I intercede weekly that you would become the kind of people that God is proud to look at and say, that's my son, that's my daughter, they belong to me, and it's evident by the fruit of their life. I want that to be what the commandments do in you. So today, I have no grand emotional release or altar call for you, but I do have a charge. Would you rise on your feet as we pray? Father, we come to you as one body. Without the divisions of murder and covetousness in our hearts, we come to you and we say, God, help us to do the good works that you've prepared for us. God, I don't want to have a faith that's dead. I want to have a faith that works. Lord, would you put your spirit in each heart? Would you forgive them of their sins? Would you redeem them? Would you give them hope again so that they could see the great love that you love them with and give others that too? Lord, I pray these commandments wouldn't fall on deaf ears and hard hearts, but that these commandments would shape our hearts, soften them, and give us a heart of flesh so that we could love our neighbor as ourselves and we could love our enemies, those who hate us and revile us. I pray that they too would see the love of God in us. And I ask this, Lord, in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen.